Hi everyone, um, my name is Morgan and today I'm joined by two special guests. Y'all can decide who goes first. I'm Lily. And I'm Rihanna. And this is Black Chat the Podcast. Wow, cue the air horns. Um, yes. It's so cute, actually. Our um, our new audio producer, I just got sent. Um, last week, we recorded with Barbara Sharinos. And so I just got finished the like edited audio for that. And I was listening to it. And she actually put in air horn sounds, like in a kind That's of awesome. It's really cute. Um, but yeah, I'm joined by these two lovely human beings. And I'm super jazzed to have y'all. Um, for context, before I get into our bios, um, we're having this conversation basically prompted by the amazing play that Lily here wrote. Um, and we can, I'll get you to explain like a little bit of the history about that and stuff later on. Um, but you did a recent online live stream interactive, um, I don't know play lingo, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but um, uh, performance over a series of a few days of, of this play um, in February, in which me and Kona hosted a couple talkbacks for, and on the first night that we hosted the talkback on the 19th, Rihanna joined in. And so I just figured, why not gather all these lovely biracial beans, light brights, whatever, and talk about the play and talk about some of the topics around the play. And Lily, of course, was the natural original guest and I was like wow Ryan I'm so glad that you've seen this come on and uh come on this episode so I'm feel very grateful to have you both thank you for being here for having me yes thanks for having us oh my gosh no problem and just to again give more context to who these lovely humans are I'm going to read off some bios so Lily Robinson is, I wanted to make sure I said your last name right, wow. Okay, Lily Robinson is a playwright, poet, actor, and community organizer based on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Lily is passionate about centering voices at the intersections of queerness, black diaspora, socioeconomic diversity, and femme identity in her work. Having completed a year as the artistic producing intern at Theater Replacement in 2019, Lily is currently the Emerging Playwright in Residence at Rumble Theater and recently completed the Emerging Playwrights Unit at the Arts Club. Projects they've been involved in since the pandemic times include Rumble Theater's online production of B by Guillermo Calderon, I believe is how you say it. Thank you. Theater Replacement Sound Installation Project Speaker A and the organizing of Rest and Resilience, a series of online gatherings for Black queers alongside Siobhan Barker and Kona. Two years ago, Lily's debut play Mix won the Fringe New Play Prize. After nine months of development, the Mix team had a successful run of an early version of the show at the 2019 Vancouver Fringe Festival. This past February, Mix officially premiered, further developed and revamped pandemic style as a live stream theater piece presented by The Coach. Exciting. 
Um, and Rihanna is actual blood relation to this panel. So my sibling on my dad's side, therefore Kona's actual nibbling. Um, and Rai is the co-founder of the Prairie Youth Radical Organizing School based in Treaty 6, colonially known as Edmonton, Alberta. Their university student at the University of Alberta, majoring in sociology with a minor in women's and gender studies. And yeah, I'm just jazzed to have both of you on this thing. So thanks for being here. I assume, I hope that, but it, it's fine if you haven't, but that both of y'all have listened to previous episodes of the podcast. Um, and we do this little thing for our land acknowledgements where we talk about where we come from and the lands that we're on. And since, I mean, I know me and Lily are in like the same place, air quote, and Ryan, you're joining from out elsewhere, so that's great. But um, just for example, um, I'm uh, currently attending and most of Black Chat is recorded or hosted from the stolen ancestral lands of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh people. Um, my exact specific location currently is, I believe, Musqueam, uh, Musqueam territory. And I came here from Treaty... I came here from Treaty 5, I believe, I get this possibly incorrect every time, which is um, somewhere in northern uh, Manitoba, which was home to the Plains Cree and Michif Métis people. Um, and my family on my mother's side is Ukrainian and on my father's side is from Guyana, South America. Um, and so that's how I've come to be here. What about y'all? Who wants to go first? Lily speaking. Um, yeah, so I've lived my whole life um, here on unceded Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh and Squamish First Nations uh, territories. Um, and my, I come here by way of on my mom's side my family are European settlers um, from uh, England and also from the United States um, you know goes further back but that's the main thing I know about my grandmother's side is that they're from the States and uh, on my dad's side um, you know, my people you know I'm of African descent, uh, stolen people who were brought here through the transatlantic slaves trade um, and, you know, by way of the United States is how I've ended up here, though most of my dad's side is still in the States. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, hello, it's Rihanna. I am currently in Treaty 6 um, on the stolen lands of the Blackfoot Plains Cree Métis Nakota Sioux and the Setsuna. My mother's family is Norwegian and my father's family, which Morgan has already said, is from Guyana, South America. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you both for joining. Thank you for situating yourselves on the lands as well as um, on your ancestry. And I mean, we both, uh, we all spoke about it in, you know, that little moment there, you know, we are all three of us, a combination of some form of biracialness, um, all black, white mixed. And so I guess a question for the group and yeah, we can decide as we go that it or we'll edit it out. But a question for the group is, um, you know, being biracial, specifically being biracial, raised by white mothers, um, what potentially was your access to black culture, like the black experience, potentially your black father, you know, what was, what's the tea there? 
For me, uh, yeah, I grew up in East Vancouver. Um, and it's funny because when I started writing mix and I started sort of telling the story of, um, of what my upbringing was like, I sort of, because I, I, as a kid, I wasn't conscious of any black community or even that I had a right to like be part of black community. Mm -hmm. And yet when I realized that I was totally um, sort of skipping over when I first started telling the story is like, I grew up in social housing and uh, the majority of the kids in my building that I hung out with like every day in the summer were black, were from Ghana. Um, uh, their families had immigrated to Canada, you know, colonially known as. Um, and so it's funny because I did grow up in some ways with a lot of blackness in that one little sphere. But the way that I was raised and certainly in those days, you know, the approach of Canadian multiculturalism was that we don't talk about it, right? We don't talk about the nuances and the complexities and the racism of, of, uh, of you know, that comes along with being people of color and with, you know, living in a white supremacist society. So, and certainly when I was a kid in Vancouver, there uh, even more so than than now, you know, our black population is very small, as I've heard talked about on this podcast, the, you know, the sort of politics of, okay, let's not erase the fact that yes, there are black people here. But the reality is our, our population is small, and spread out is the other thing, right? So I didn't, I didn't grow up with a sense of myself as part of a black community or really in relationship to it um in my day-to-day -day life yeah like i've grown up pretty much surrounded entirely by white people i don't have um community where i'm at currently so my entire like relation to blackness has come in like microcosms and like very specific instances mostly related to family gatherings um so like no real connection really and it's like difficult to situate that within myself because like i know but at the same time there's no one around that's so interesting too because like out of the two of us i don't actually know what we're i mean listen if we need to not spill the tea we cannot spill the tea and we can i'll make notes for the editor but yeah. out of the two of us like we have the same father mm -hmm. and i didn't grow up with any in any connection any relation really with dad like yeah. i only in the last couple of years of my life have began talking with him on a regular basis and so Again, I don't know what your relation with him growing mm -hmm. up was, but to my knowledge, it was in closer proximity to, but granted, I mean, one day we will also have dad on the podcast and we can talk about his experience with blackness because hey. this, <laughs> yeah, this um, only dated white women. So sorry, dad, but we're going to call it what it is. We're going to call it what it is. Um, yeah. So it's interesting because while dad is in like the same area as me, we have had a strange relationship, if that makes sense. Like we literally are in the same city, but we rarely ever see each other, even in the course of the, like with the pandemic that has like amplified that. But yeah, like we 
I can recall, like count on my hands how many times I've been like directly with him. And a lot of the times it's never alone. It's with a partner that he has. So yeah, we've never really talked about that at all. So that that's T. We, you know, that'll that's a whole other conversation, but yeah. Wow. It reminds me, all of this conversation reminds me of something that comes up from the show. So when we, when we, for, I, I've only seen your show mix, Lily, I've only seen it once and it was only, um, or twice rather, I watched it on the Friday, the 19th. And then on the Sunday, I watched it with my, um, co-watched it with my mom. Oh, I'm very interested to hear what that experience is for you. You know, to be honest, we've yet to like fully debrief it. She's like, we've gone to debrief it and she'll bring up like, she asked me one specific question and she asked me, actually, interesting. She hmm. asked me if I felt like an orphan because there's a moment in, in the play where yeah. uh, Miss Nancy is talking about, I don't have the exact line in front of me because it's not even a note that I originally had from the show, but that Miss Nancy is talking about, you know, these children of the diaspora who don't really know what part of the diaspora is ours or we're from and what have you. And, you know, this kind of like orphan sense that comes with that. Mm -hmm. And so it was really interesting to me that that was the question that my mom asked. And I felt like it was a bit of a trick question where I was like, <laughs> um... <laughs> Because when I was younger, I used to make jokes and th say that I was like adopted or something because there was black yeah. people around. And, you know, there were no, there was very, I think there's a, maybe two photos of my father in any of my childhood. And I was just like, <laughs> um, you, you know, if you ask, I, it was just a weird, it was just a weird moment. But, you know, my mom also didn't grow up with her father. She doesn't, she found out when she was like, 18 or something like that, that she was actually the man who she grew up as her father adopted her. She has never met her dad. She went to school with his, with her like step siblings, half siblings, and she never knew until she was 18. So she has her own kind of piece. So she was talking about it from a bit of a different lens. Yeah. We've never actually debriefed that play. Mm -hmm. Maybe I should go and revisit that conversation with her. But there's a piece other than that that comes up in the play that is be that there's a line I think that says being black without knowing that you're black and Ran you talked about it a little bit Lily I'm curious for yourself I mean for people that haven't seen the play where you explore pieces of this please talk about that a little sure yeah and I realized in the, our earlier sort of intros I, I didn't clearly say like I grew up just with my mom just with my white side of my family and yeah this piece around so in the in the beginning of the show, there's basically the, the structure of the show off the top is there's this um, sort of talk show host character, Ms. Nancy, who to people familiar with African mythology will realize that it's based on this trickster character of Ananzi. And so she is sort of incarnated as this talk show host and she brings on my character Max as the special guest and in the first chunk of the show we kind of get an introduction of Ms. Nancy sort of pulling out some history from Max's life and a lot of that is taken straight from my own reality mm -hmm. as a person <laughs> um, and so this 
this bit around um, being black without knowing that you're black is to do with, yeah, when I was a kid and she kind of, Ms. Nancy describes all these circumstances, which are the real circumstances of my childhood was that, you know, I'm very light skinned. I grew up in a liberal white household um, where the, what they had learned, whether they were conscious of it or not, like my mom and the rest of my family was, um, you know, that to fight racism, you don't talk about race. <laughs> yes. That, that is the, that is the yeah. woke thing to do to move the world forward. That's what they had been brought up with. Right. Right. And, <laughs> and um, so there was that factor. There's a factor of, you know, I grew up in a, in a, again, I grew up in East Vent. I grew up around a lot of socioeconomic and ethnic diversity, but because it's Vancouver, not a ton of black people. And, um, the way I describe it is that I understood my blackness as like an anecdote, like, mm -hmm. like a funny story, like, oh, fun fact. Did you know my dad was black? I've never met him, but I know he's black. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> like it was something really separate from me mm -hmm. and my embodied sense of self. And it wasn't until later. And, and you know, I'm sure we'll get into this at some point of like, um, where it became uh, an embodied understanding of like, oh, this is part, this lives in my body and I need to figure out what this is. Um, and not just in terms of this lives in my body physically, but also in terms of like literally, I, I'm, I'm really going down the route these days of like looking into intergenerational trauma and some of Resma Menicum's work um, who wrote My Grandmother's Hands he does has some really interesting writing around that you know our our ancestors are not just with us like like uh, figuratively they literally we are made of the same things as them and we are made of the same reactions to mm. all the shit they had to go through and all the ways that they survive is actually coded into our DNA of like this is how you do it <laughs> this, is, mm. this is the survival instinct right. So anyway, that's a bit of a tangent, but it's something I feel strongly about in these conversations of like um, for mixed people, mixed black people to understand that that I don't know that that for me was a big, a big part of feeling able to step into my sense of my blackness and claim it and not feel like I was appropriating something that wasn't mine, which was how which is what I wrestled with for a long, long time and felt very uh, anxious and insecure about but when I when I started understanding oh no this is something that is deep in my body and it doesn't matter what other people perceive me as this is who I this is a part of who I am right and um, yeah so that's that's a long-winded answer to that there's like there's so much to unpack with it you know like the growing up around solely white people right and then trying to reclaim or to even claim period blackness for people around you, it seems like a direct attack. Mm -hmm. Like it, it seems like a direct attack and people get very defensive about it. They're like, well, you're also white. Can't you also be white? Like that's the part that that's the problem is that trying to deal with these two different very different ways of moving through the world existing in one person like that's so complicated <laughs> to understand even from both of these like individually monoracial if we want to 
you know, categorize it like that. But with monoracial people, there's like a lack of understanding that there is complication in the biracial identity. Like there's a lot of, with this, this piece of intergenerational trauma that you were talking about, Lily, it's like, you literally have two sides of your, your being that have been constantly at war or being one part subjugating another part of your existence. That's yeah. like a hard thing to tackle and to comprehend if that makes any sense. Absolutely. I just kind of found the words for this through listening to a podcast, not directly about mixedness, but this idea of that talking about colonization more broadly, that the co the colonizer has like makes the colonized part of itself. Right. And that made me think about how as mixed people, we are like, we are colonizer and colonized. And that's part yes. of what this tension is. Yeah. I, um, I, I've had a couple conversations, particularly with Kona. I don't know if they've been on the podcast or not, um, but around, yeah, being like biracial and what it's like. And I, I'm like a tough love kind of person with other biracial people where I'm like, I understand it's hard and we have to fucking like not get over it, but like work through it and work through it in a way that isn't taking up a, a bunch of spotlight, but that's kind of a different conversation. And yeah, I've, I've historically referred to, especially my early days of like unpacking who I am as a black person or what that means. Um, really like feeling like the in my internal landscape is literally a civil war. Yes. Like, yeah. You know, in the same way where Black people and, and everyone else has, you know, our, our trauma, our joy and everything is, and is, you know, it's in our DNA, it's part of who we are, it's passed down, it's ancestral, that is also true on our white side. And I think that that is one thing that like when it comes to white people working through their whiteness um, is something that they need to recognize is that, you know, the, the racism and everything, that shit's deep rooted. And so you have to work it out. And so for biracial people, like you have, you have to do, you have to do those pieces. Yeah. Like I, for me, for my own journey, in order for me to be able to eventually start to pick apart and then embrace my so to pick apart the my what my own whiteness and then go into be able to embrace parts of my Ukrainian heritage, oh. I really needed to figure out who I as a black person was enough to have an identity to kind of lean on while then I entirely picked apart this one that I had known to be true for the majority of my life. Right. You know, not necessarily that I saw myself as a white person, but I was submerged in whiteness. And it was, it's exactly what you said, Lily. It's like a fun fact, you know, that it's like, yeah, I'm part black, <laughs> you know, guess what, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, people, people not believing that my mom was my mom because it made more sense for me to be in a close relation, like for me to have been in some relation to like the woman who raised me, who's a crematee woman who had like curly hair. And even though that's not at all how genetics work and our curl patterns are entirely different, but like, you know, people just making all of these assumptions and having to unpack it all, like it's complex and it's hard and it's weird. 
and to try to do so I think in a public space whether that's through like tv shows or through plays or a podcast or whatever um there's a lot of weight in that I remember you Lily talking in our talk in, in our talk back and I think you've just talked historically about how there's a you know to what degree are we as light-skinned biracial people allowed entitled have space whatever to talk about these specific topics of race when colorism is also a really big thing that wasn't really a question but I don't really have anything to <laughs> I don't know where to go from there if anyone wants to pick that up or we can go on to the next piece but I guess what I take from what you just said of like the next the next step of that thought is this thing around you know balance and I think you spoke about this a little bit already of balancing the tension of you know I have I have a right to and I need to I have a responsibility to unpack this shit for myself mm -hmm. and and there is stuff to be learned from that journey both for me and for others you know and certainly certainly for white people <laughs> um you know of like this journey of un unpacking these sort of ins and outs of of what racial identity means and what it means to how you're perceived all these all these biases and things and at the same time being really conscious of um what you know, for light-skinned mixed people and, and light-skinned mixed people who are mixed with European whiteness, <laughs> whiteness in general, um, you know, that that your responsibility also is to leverage the fuck out of that shit for people who face more barriers than us, for darker-skinned people, for, you know, um, and that that, you know, especially right now as as we're seeing, I was on the bus yesterday and I was like, man, every billboard I see these days is a light-skinned black woman. I don't yeah. know if y'all have noticed that. Right, some like racially ambiguous, light-skinned, yeah. yeah. Specifically like <laughs> leaning toward, like pretty clearly a light, a light but a black woman, right? Yeah. And, you know, coming out of the uprising and everything. Um, all these corporations trying to get into like, oh, we care about black people. Let's put a light skinned black woman on something. That means we care. And just being like, oh, this is this is not the way. Yeah. <laughs> and it's our job as, as light skinned people who are now getting all these invitations, especially to, uh, to start to both like just um, get darker skinned people to the front, but also wrestle with that thing of like, and I don't know if this is what we want to get into now or later of just like, um, you know, everybody's got to pay the bills, but at what point do we need to start put it, passing off opportunities to other people, um, you know, for, because it's the right thing to do. Like if we're saying that we care about moving, you know, moving towards black liberation, then what we need to be doing is putting dark skinned femmes at the forefront, right? And mm -hmm. So that's, mm -hmm. that's the work. I mean, I love the idea of talking about that now. Like, why not? We're talking about it. I mean, I have a note in here that pertains to something along those lines, but not quite. Mm -hmm. To what point? Because there was some, you know, there's been over this last year, there's been a bunch of, you know, newly surfacing Rachel Dolezal's. Um, I forget what their names are, but, you know, all of these, all of these white women, uh, black fishing as black folks. And I, 
I, I saw there was a bunch of conversations that I saw on Twitter, what have you, of dark skinned black people being like part of the reason why this stuff is able to happen is because we socially, I say we, but also like institutionally give light skinned black people a in without a lot of like vetting, you know, or without a lot of confirmation. And I'm curious about how y'all feel about that because I know a lot of light-skinned people's response to that was like, oh, I shouldn't have to verify my blackness every time I do something. But again, you know, we have this ability to sometimes pick or more easily switch or more easily gain access or more more welcomed or invited or whatever, often with, you know, a catch, but nonetheless into, into some spaces, into opportunities. And whether those are from like black opportunities or opportunities presented by whites or whatever that thing is. And so, yeah, like, where is it, where is it our job to be having these conversations about, about colorism? Where is it our jobs to be channeling um, colorism in job or opportunity offers or anything like that? Yeah. I think that we have to like actually start having the conversation rather than pretending like it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And being really open and honest about like the opportunities that we have had in the past or opportunities that we have been offered mm-hmm. that we know we got solely because of our proximity to whiteness. Like, yes, our like accomplishments and our our work is valid, but at some point, the reason that it gets pushed to the forefront or even like asked about is because we have that close proximity to whiteness and people can brush aside all of the other like valid criticism of white supremacy because they know that we operate within whiteness and within, you know, our ability to pass racially and to mix into these different this these different spheres and i think the other part of it is if there's a fear to have the conversation then that is something that the person who is fearful of the conversation needs to be checking with themselves rather than pushing that like hesitancy onto dark skinned black folks like yeah. that's that's not their thing to hold that's yours to hold yeah. yeah, and I think it's it's the thing of like if you are taking an opportunity that is uh, like uplifting you as a black person, then it's your responsibility to disrupt the shit out of any part of that that is to do with them um, giving you a cookie for your proximity to whiteness, right? Like, yeah, yeah, like like you better be using the shit out of of that opportunity to leverage it to get that door all the way the fuck open right like that's what i see it as and yeah this thing about vetting i don't know i want to circle back to that because that is that's a it's hard and messy and (laughs) and it reminds me i just saw this thing on instagram that was going around that made i had to i looked at it and i was like oh i'm feeling fragile about this i need to step back and then come back to this so i did i don't know if y'all saw this thing that was going around being like i think what it was trying to do was 
the real point of it was to talk about light-skinned overrepresentation, like what we're talking about. Right. Um, light-skinned people getting these opportunities to be the face of blackness and that that's sort of set as the norm. Mm-hmm. But what it all was also saying is that if you're mixed, you're not black. You're mixed. You're mixed. <laughs> you're black and white or whatever. And mm-hmm. that, I, that I, I sat with it because I was like, is this... Um, is this just my own fragility? And then I came back and I'm like, nah, that part of it I think is is bullshit, personally. Of like, I think, I think the conversation around uplifting all parts of yourself, sure, that's a fair conversation to be and and like the way you presenced right away, Morgan, like um, you know, part as black and white people, part of what our responsibility is is to wrestle with both of those things and wrestle with the the sort of ancestral inheritances of both of those things mm-hmm. yes but to be like you're not black you're mixed what the fuck i was like okay so so barack obama is not the first black president barack obama was the first mixed president does that sound right well okay because i hear what you're saying i hear what you're saying i also think that because black as like it I was going to say as a DNA type, and it just makes me sound. <laughs> <laughs> but black, black is a, a wow. I don't know what is the word for it, but like uh, I think phenotype is the word that I want. I don't know, but the phenotypes of blackness, the traits of blackness, physical traits of blackness, are dominant traits, right? And so I think what is a key thing to remember in what you're saying there is that like. A good majority of the time, and I mean, that changes because there are some biracial people that is less so the case. Yep. But for the most part, like black, your blackness is visible, you know, like, like your blackness is visible. People will see you as a black person before they see you as a white person. You know, they'll just see you as like an accessible black person. Um but, you know, in the same vein, I mean, Barack Obama, I think, looks, air quote, more black than any of us on this call. Absolutely. But that's the thing, too, is that and then that's like that's what made me irritated about this post is that it's not being specific about what it's talking about either, because what it's talking about is light skinned privilege, light skinned and mixed race are not the same necessarily. No. You cannot just equate those. Right. And also like being conscious of mixed Black people does not automatically mean mixed with whiteness, right? Like this is like a shorthand that we've become yeah. accustomed to. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but but exactly, there are things we can talk, we can and need to talk about light skin privilege that is not necessarily synonymous with being mixed. And if sorry, I'm I'm kind of on one about this. But talk, listen, talk about it. I'll talk. <laughs> listen, finish yours. I'll bring in the real house. Okay. 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 Here's the, the other thing I have about this is if you're saying mixed people are not black people you realize all the mix and like i'm gonna mention rape in a minute but not in depth uh but just to mention like all the mixed babies who were born into slavery because they were raped their mothers were raped by their slave owners you're gonna say those those people weren't black like Also, yeah, to say that mixed people aren't Black literally says that every, basically, every single African-American born person isn't Black. 
And that's the thing too, is that mixed, yes. this, is, this is just the thing is like, yes, let's be real about light skin privilege. Yes, let's be real about colorism, but we have to be specific about what we're talking about when we get into these things, because, because exactly that, like blackness, certainly in the diaspora is so fucking mixed. It's so fucking mixed. It's not necessarily biracial all the time, not by any means, but like, like the, this is something I think about and something that has made me feel a little bit more ownership of, of my skin and of my blackness is that like my mom's white, my dad is like dark black, right? And and probably I'm not a geneticist, but my understanding of genetics, and it's probably similar for y'all, is like our our uh, African ancestors are through the slave trade. We probably have slave owner rapist ancestors in our past, and that that genome or whatever that's not the right word, but you know that genetic, that You're genetic. Scientist. That genetic material showed up as well as our mom's whiteness. And so we turned out super light, even if we have darker skinned fathers, right? Like the math is not uh, always linear, at least is my mm -hmm. understanding. And genet some geneticists can like get at us and tell me all the mistakes I've made in that. But like, I think it's just, we have to reckon with that complexity. Yeah, I definitely agree. I. When you said Rachel Dahl is all, I had feelings about it because it's, I, so I watched her, her story, like the whole, you know, this is the reason why I've decided to adopt the title of a transracial black person. Right. Um, and like, I have empathy for the fact that like, oh, you went through a really shitty time in your life. That sucks. But at the same time, you were offered a whole bunch of fucking opportunities because of the fact that you claimed an identity that you do not actually have. Like, you did that. You did that to, to you. You made that claim which is so frustrating to me. It's so frustrating to me that this random white lady was so ballsy to claim the title of being a black woman without any like actual real life tangible experience with being black. And when when I looked, when I saw you'd written out this question, Morgan, about black fishing, and I was like, what do I have to say about that? And it, it dovetails with what you just said, Rihanna, of, of like, I, I think part of the thing, and this is where, you know, us as folks who are mixed with whiteness, which should need to be investigating, is like, what is the thing that white supremacy has done to white people? Like, what is their fucking trauma that they mm. need to do that? Like, we know that white supremacy has given them the entitlement to do what you just said. I'd like to fucking be like, I'm just gonna be a black woman now because I can. Like, because I want to. Because I want to. That <laughs> that's really like, all it was, was because she wanted to. We, well, but that's the thing. I think it's that and there's also a bunch of other shit, right? Yeah. And, and that's the thing that I, you know, white people need to be doing the work to look into and us who are mixed white, like mixed with white people, <laughs> you know, mixedness is weird, I don't know, to like, to, to start to unpack that, like, what is that sense of emptiness inside you? Because I really think that's a big part of white supremacy, mm -hmm. this emptiness, 
this hunger that has to be filled with other people's shit. Like, I think that um, I have this idea that I want to work on more of like, I don't know how it happened, but white people were the first to be colonized. And that's why they're the deepest in it. I what Morgan hit me what so I'm pretty sure we've talked about this before on the podcast I at least know that I've been having this conversation okay okay I think white people are like the OG colonized and I say this and this happens specifically through religion when Christianity went and fucking um I almost said cascaded but there's like a proper word crusaded (laughs) there it is yeah wow my bimbo is fully in full (laughs) force Um, but when like, when like Christianity went through and bombarded mm-hmm. everybody and indoctrinated everybody, mm-hmm. you know, white people had their own traditional cultural practices, their own herbal practices, their own, all of these things time, time, time ago. Yes. They yeah. had all these connections to their culture. They had, you know, I think about like my, my family, for example, and it's like, you know, I don't think, I don't know if anyone after my great grandma knows how to make pierogies, you know, like, which is whatever, but like, these are white people. Pierogies are like a Ukrainian staple. Yeah. yeah. They don't know how to make them because of their own, you know, their own cultural losses. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like at the end of the day, and this isn't an identity to be taken up. So white people, I will not accept this from you. If you, I won't, I won't, if you start saying this, but we are all as people indigenous to somewhere it, somewhere in history, in time, place, all mm-hmm. of that. And Christianity really came through and said, I don't give a shit about your personal practices. I don't care about your cultural witchcraft. This is the way to do it. This is the way of God. Swept everyone's you know, identity from away a and replaced it with Christianity and then used that as a tool to do go and do it elsewhere. I think it also has to do with that cross-section of of Christianity, of like hard religion like that, and uh, and imperialism, and both of them work to put power in the hands of someone at the top, right? And the, mostly a man at the top, right? I think that's the thing that that we're seeing more and more, and you know, more and more, especially on Instagram and shit, and in our generation, like. People want their astrology. People want their crystals. People, you know, there's this whole new age thing. I think part of it, part of it is a longing for connection, for feeling connected to the world around you, as we see indigenous cultures do and know how to, you know, and um, this sense of that there is power in the world. There is power in me as a person and and that we are connected in a way where we te- take care of each other right and mm-hmm. where all the power everything everything has power right and right. we can enjoy that and not abuse it and not funnel it into one person you know what i mean like i just think there's a that's this is such a big part this is this feels like a thing that people are just starting to talk about i'm sure in academia you know there's someone who's written lots of stuff about us but it feels really important to like bring this to the forefront of like what what is this longing for like for that that we see come up in appropriation in all this new age kind of stuff that when you when you draw it back is linked to so many indigenous ways of knowing and of being with the world you know Mm -hmm. i think like a lot of that also boils down to being afforded individuality right like 
white people are seen as individuals first, right? Whereas folks of color across the board are seen as part of a collective, which these two systems work to a disadvantage and an advantage. So like for white people, it's a disadvantage because they don't have connection Mm -hmm. with each other. They are, they see each other as individuals first rather than part of anything, right? Whereas with folks of color, we're seen as part of like, what is the word that I'm looking for? The collective? (laughs) Yeah, like we're seen as part of a collective before we're seen as an individual person, which is a benefit in the sense that we don't know the disconnect on that large of a scale, like individually probably, but on that large of a scale, it's not like I have no culture. So like there's advantages and disadvantages to both of these systems. But a lot of this is based on the fact that white people are seen as individuals first. Yo, that's wild. I immediately then think about like queers, right? Because I think queerness would be another thing that mm-hmm. is like, that like socially we do, we say, oh, those queers over there. Right. <laughs> into the <laughs> into, that is queer into this bubble without recognizing nuance but then we get you know like white queers who are out here mm, trying to do sympathy because they've experienced depression but then that's getting that gets messy <sighs> that is a whole other conversation but i have so much anger about this like i visceral anger Okay. Because one, you forget exactly why the movement for queer liberation even started. That's like the first part. The second thing is, is that like, they're two different systems, right? That are connected, but it works very differently. Like homophobia, real thing. No one is debating that it's not a real thing but you are white first before before you were a queer person. I see what you're, yes. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, like, the world sees you as white first. The world will see you as white first and they're more likely to empathize with you. Like straight white people, okay, are more likely to empathize with a queer white person because of their proximity to whiteness. Right. If there's a queer person of color, immediately it's you are an other I don't want to deal with it. Well, even if you're a straight person of color, they're like... I don't want to deal with it, so. <laughs> Right? But it, it's that they identify the whiteness first and see them as an individual yeah. rather than a person who is also part of a collective. Mm-hmm. I see you thinking, Lily. Yeah, I just had a... I was just thinking about... I was having a conversation last night about, like, sort of the the thing of like playing oppression olympics like that idea versus Mm -hmm. the realities on the uh, the flip side of that being the realities of compounding oppressions right and like that's what that's what intersectional feminism is rooted in you know as we know and and so like when you're just saying um uh, uh, a white gay person for example Mm -hmm. and choose to 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 just be in their whiteness right like in terms of how they show up and that Mm -hmm. that is privilege there it's obviously you're hiding a part of yourself and and that's you know i just draw the line of like 
we can talk about that similarly in terms of, again, getting into the, the, the reality of colorism, of exactly. that we can choose to lean into our proximity to whiteness. It will never make us white, but we can choose to lean into that. Um, whereas someone, and this is, I guess, it sounds like, it seems like, slight tangent it seems like everyone is suddenly saying the word phenotypes and i had the idea of what it meant but i had to look it up to make sure i was like coming into this right but yeah but you know in terms of how visibly quote colored you present like mm -hmm. how dark skinned how you know what your how much your features deviate from whiteness um i yeah that was just the thing i was thinking about as you know a parallel in terms of looking at queerness and looking at race. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's super legit, right? Like there is, if I decided to, I mean, my hair is as much as, you know, I take real good care of her. We also combed her locks, her out of locks. So like, you know, I don't know what would yep. look like. And so let's say if, if I put on a straight haired wig and, you know, go into a government building and use my, I'm in a government building voice, like, <laughs> You know, it's really easy for me. It's, you know, it's really easy for me yeah. to move move in that space. And it, again, yeah, like I'm leaving a part of myself in order to do that. But that is, you know, a, a privilege, sometimes a survival tactic, whatever, that we, that all three of us, I think, have a yeah. easier time accessing than other people. Mm -hmm. You know, other mixed people, other white and black mixed people. Mm -hmm. Um. When, uh, when we were originally talking about this, and then I'll recircle back to what we're talking about. Oh, sorry. I don't know if any, either of you watched The Real Housewives of Potomac. Okay, so I, at the beginning of the pandemic, di deep dived into the okay. saga. And in The Real Housewives of Potomac, there are two women, Giselle and Robin, who are green-eyed, light-skinned, like dirty blonde-haired in wigs, but I digress, um, black women. Mm -hmm. And someone in the first season brings up is like, oh, y'all are mixed race. And they're like, we're not mixed race. And we're like, are you sure? And they're like, well, both of my parents are black. And granted, I mean, light skinned black people. But I was like, wow. <laughs> okay, but this comes back to our earlier conversation, right? Of like, you could be like, you could be like, these are some fucking Rachel Dolezals. Let me see your birth certificate. <laughs> But also, that is the reality, especially in like places, you know, have places where the slave trade was as heavy and intense as the United States. Is that's a reality that there are light-skinned people as light-skinned as us who all their living relatives are black? Yeah. Like that's real shit too. So this is why it's like we gotta we gotta be like meticulous in how mm -hmm. we come at people in these conversations. You know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Lily, I know you didn't watch it, but you mentioned earlier you were talking about light skinness getting us up. We are all talking about light being light skin getting us opportunities. And I we need to take a second to talk about this Meghan Markle, Oprah, Prince Harry interview because two things. Okay, first of all, just so you know, Lily, these are these are like two facts that like this is just a fact of the interview that you don't need to watch. I'm just telling you to be true. At no point in that interview does anybody, Oprah, Harry, or Meghan, refer to Meghan Markle or mention her as Black. And At no point. 
Please remind me and other people who are out of it about this. So Megan, she has a parent who is black. Yes, is that right? She's she's a split like us. Do we know? I this? believe. I believe. Yeah, she is. That is correct. That okay. is correct. Yeah, she has one parent who is black, and the, yeah, for like more context, Prince Harry is royalty to the to the the crown in the UK. Wow, colonizer supreme. We know. Yeah, colonizer supreme. Mm-hmm. Um. And Meghan Markle was in, I know her from Suits, but she's an actress and philanthropist and humanitarian who married in, they had a child and then they essentially escaped the monarchy because they were on some racist fuck shit and the monarchy stripped them of security and then stripped them. They've actually been stripped of all of their titles. Like Harry isn't even all of their titles. He's not even like a part, like, his like most simplest title because of his birthright, not even. I not didn't even. realize that. That's yeah. Um, and then Oprah brought them on the show and said, hello, let's talk about <laughs> it. So that's what happened over the weekend. Go watch it. Um, but they never referred to Megan as black throughout the no. entire thing. She refers to, they either say person of color, woman of color or biracial. Mm-hmm. They never say black. Mm-hmm. And Harry's the only one that says racism. Let me be clear. This white man. So bizarre. It, listen, that's like, show up for your partner. You know what I'm saying? But that is, that was the part that shocked me, I think, was the fact that he was like very open, like, no, this is racism. Yeah, he you know? was like, like he, he said racism played a part. Yes, it did. Part. And everybody's just kind of sitting there like, all right. Harry went there. Go white boy, go. Apparently, I. So that's one fact of the interview, and then the other fact is I. And so, in addition to that, I find it interesting that she doesn't refer to nobody refers to her as black. Nobody mentions black. The word black is not brought up Mm. in the interview Mm. in terms of identity, anyways. Mm -hmm. So I find it interesting that like if this were a darker skinned black woman. You know, if she could impress her hair to be, I don't know if it's, I don't know what her natural hair looks like, but you know, it, if she had a kinkier situation happening, whatever, this will, Harry would have never been able to date this woman. She would, they would have never been, he would have had to leave, leave the family before even getting married. And so I find it interesting that like colorism is the thing that got her into this. They do not talk about that and how racism is the thing that like got her out was the thing to leave. And so I want to talk about this. I want to talk about the fact that she doesn't address the colorism and how we feel perhaps about her not, how nobody referring to her as black or mentioning her blackness. I just, like, I think that that is a really important part of the whole story, you know? Like, the majority of that interview is them talking about, like, the after effects or, like, things that led to them leaving, but not things that led to them being able to be in a relationship right like why you should be having that conversation because it really sets up like how the events play out Mm -hmm. so i i have so many feelings about it about like different parts of that interview too Mm -hmm. like the whole conversation about like how dark this child is going to be are you fucking serious Okay, I saw. I I can't help. 
the memes around this have been popping, right? Because I can't help, I can't help, I couldn't help but laugh when that came up, which is a problem because racism is gross. But they're out here talking like this baby is gonna, <laughs> like this baby's gonna come out like dark skinned. <laughs> And I'm like, and I mean, granted, I mean, Lily, it's what you're talking about. There's a bunch of recessed genes. Yeah, it's very possible that that could have happened, right? It's the fact that that conversation conversation was even allowed to happen. I mean, I also, though, I'm not here for the surprise. I'm not here for the fact no. that people are surprised. I'm like, yeah, the empire that is responsible for colonization, genocide, you know, ethnic cleansing, yeah. all of these things. Oh, they don't want a racialized grandchild? <laughs> like, why are... That's the that's the other thing. Why are all of these fucking people so surprised that this... That the monarchy is racist? Like, what? Mm-hmm. What do you mean? What do you mean when you say that you're surprised? The monarchy is literally the reason why this legacy and this system are still in place like this is a physical representation of this system being in place and people are debating whether or not this actually happened or if she's making it up air quotes like how do you what who is i would like to speak to everybody's manager i'm like this is this is again like i hesitate to take up a lot of space talking about like like learning moments for white people but again i feel like you know that's that's part of our jobs as people who are mixed with whiteness right is to like break that shit down Mm -hmm. and um of just like yeah that thing the 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 like shock and denial and i think that's yeah i i feel the same of like it's so tiring when people are are keep putting energy into shock and expecting me to put energy into shock. I'm like, I don't have time for that. I know. Like, I don't have time to, or energy to, to be shocked anymore. Um, but it is this, I think the thing to identify that, that white people have to wrestle with and with any, anyone who is like, uh, sort of imbibing these narratives of, of, uh, nice, white supremacy essentially right mm. like the niceness of white supremacy of like this fondness for the queen this fondness for the crown this fondness even for our white ancestors you know like i feel like mm. that's a big thing of like for white people especially like being like i don't want to think about my ancestors as having done horrific racist things on the daily but they did that was the world they lived in not that it excuses it but we have to be real about Mm-hmm. like this is this is who our people are <laughs> I'm talking from you know the European side of myself and we have to we have to learn to live with that to hold that capacity for that of like oh my grandma is such a sweet lady and she was taught to be fucking racist and probably participated in a lot of fucked up shit <laughs> like uh and we have to we have to grow our capacity to understand that because that otherwise you get into this stupid cycle of of um oh but it couldn't be like that like that's not what that's not what the royal family is like <laughs> like and but from a, a standpoint of analyzing colonization we're all like well no fucking duh <laughs> like you know this 
is this is the same empire, right? Like, yeah. Harry Harry says something really interesting. So in the interview, so Oprah asks him, she's like, "Was Megan the reason? Would you would you have left the family had it not been for Megan?" And he said, "No." Hmm. He was like, "I was only she made it possible for me to leave." And Oprah's like, "Por qué?" And he's like, he's like, I was stuck. He's like, I was trapped in the system. I had no, I knew nothing other than that. And so I have compassion for my father, for my brother, for the people who are still in the system because they don't know. And I've done everything that I can to teach them in the ways that I've been taught, but they are trapped in the system. And that goes back again to what we were talking about earlier, how for white people, you're, in general, the world, our worlds as individuals can become so insular to our communities, to you know the people that we talk to, that we're used to engaging with whatever, that not that we're we like for example you know this last week the whole situation on the black chat facebook page happened where we were like bombarded by racists and not that i'm surprised that it happened but i wasn't expecting it mm-hmm. you know i we had been existing for you know over a year now in this really lovely bubblegum world of black people supporting us and wanting to you know join in the conversations whatever mm-hmm. so when that happened i was like I'm not ready, you know? And so I I can only assume the same thing that, yeah, when you're deeply entrenched in living in this royal life and everything about your existence is monitored and regulated and controlled and regimented, and there's a way of doing things and da-da-da-da-da, and this is what is ingrained, how do you even begin to know when things are off? Because I'm sure to them, again, not to justify it, but I'm sure to them, they're like, okay, yeah, it makes sense to have a conversation about what a racialized member of the royal family could look like. Mm-hmm. You know, like I don't support that. I don't support that conversation, but I can my I can get to where that made sense to them. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, they they mm-hmm. haven't seen that. Even though, you know, down the lineage there is there was a king who was married to a biracial black woman. And so, I mean, so also if we want to talk about mixedness, the royal family, y'all got black blood in you. You just don't talk about it. And y'all inbred the shit out of you. You, y'all ethnic cleansed yourselves so much. So y'all spit <laughs> inbreeding to keep it pure. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But like you know they're like we haven't seen what a racialized person in this family could look like mm-hmm. which i'm sorry also and i wouldn't have condoned it however from a strategic point it would have been significantly smarter for that royal family to utilize megan like a puppet like she basically offered them to do which she says also in the interview they could have they could have done some they could have cleared up some of their shit they could have cleared up some of this shit, some of their shit with that biracial black woman, and instead, racism intervened from being strategic, which still would have been racist. But you know what I mean? Like it's just. Can you clarify what you mean about uh, about like what they could have done? Like what would have been strategic? I just, I just think I don't know how much we would have bought into it. Like I wouldn't have bought into it, but had the royal family embraced this black woman this biracial black woman 
and really like used it as an opportunity to maybe maybe apologize for like some wrongs but even just to show even just to show a fake um progressiveness mm. i just think that would have that could have been really beneficial for them if they hadn't done it in a way that was like in your face we are a post racism da 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 da, da cuz that would have also i think been poorly for them if we're talking about the like international stage but had they been like look, you know look at us having similar you know a similar kind of re- revelation that i think happens with having a black person in office mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't at any way absolve the state of the bullshit. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, America now is pretending like it's post-racist again. Right, right. And that will be beneficial for them on the global stage. And right. so I think the crown could have done a very similar thing. And they didn't because instead mm-hmm. they chose to take an, alter- an alternate racist route, you know? I don't even know if it was a choice. And I gotta be, I gotta be... Uh just check in that I, I've been offline the last couple of days. So I've missed, I haven't seen this interview. I've missed uh, a lot of the context, but I'm just sort mm-hmm. of picking it up. But I, I say, I don't even think it was a choice because I don't think they're even conscious enough of that that was an option, <laughs> that that was an optic yeah. option they could have taken. Also yeah. because from everything you've said so far, and you know, the little that I know about Meghan Markle, but but specifically from you saying no, neither Oprah nor her like talks about Megan as black specifically. Sounds like she's not even she hasn't even at least publicly taken on that title of uh, taken that on as part of her identity, right? By as a biracial black woman, at least in the context of that interview. But you know. I, so, so she, if she hasn't, isn't even doing that in a public way, then I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. she, it, it's like both, it sounds like both her and certainly the monarchy are so many like steps back in terms of their head in the clouds as far as, uh, speaking about this stuff that they're not even at the at the like black square level yet of like oh we can leverage this right like (laughs) we haven't even gotten there yet could you imagine oh my god could you imagine tomorrow on instagram buckingham palace black square we know we know we're a little bit late but we just thought we'd just say just so you know I'm screaming. No, what it actually is, is it's a fa- it's a picture of the royal family, but there's like a fake kind of filter on it. So it looks like a, it has like a transparent back, black. No. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> oh, I, I would, I would throw away my phone. That would be the end of me using the internet. I mean, I'm already pretty close to that point of just not wanting to use the internet, but Okay, can I throw, I don't know what our time is like, but I have a question for y'all. This is something I I sort of did some informal research about um, when I was doing rewrites for Mix because I wrote the show 
in 2019 and then I was already going to be doing some rewrites and then the uprising happened and everything with Black Lives Matter last summer in 2020 and something I was really curious about as I came back to like reshaping this this character of Max who's like basically starts out as this kid who has no idea how they relate to Blackness and where they fit in their community Mm -hmm. right sort of this like this baby this baby mixy character right and so in coming back to how I was going to update the script, I was really curious, like, what have light-skinned, mixed people of European and African descent, what have their experiences been with their white families post-uprising? And that's a big old T question, but I feel like it's important. It's like, I mean, I, I can start to give you guys a second, like, I haven't, I, my family, we don't see each other super often and obviously even less with a pandemic. Like mm-hmm. in recent years, we mostly just see each other all together at Christmas. And we tend to stay pretty surface level in general. So like a chunk of my family has seen mix, certainly mm-hmm. the first version, most of my family saw that. Um, and a few of them I know saw the most recent one. So like they know some of the stuff is cooking on my brain, but like I came across a a journal entry of mine where I must've been like three years ago maybe where I wrote around Christmas, I don't bring my blackness to Christmas. That was like something that was sinking in with me of like, ah, right. I don't show up that way in this space. Cause it's, and this Christmas, you know, last summer I was like, okay, well, this is what I've got it. I got to bring some shit up at Christmas. And then of course it was a pandemic. So we didn't have Christmas with big family. Things. But yeah, like I've made a lot of progress with my mom. We've since, um, since the first iteration of mix to now, like we've made a lot of progress. She has a, a lot more understanding than she used to, but broadly, you know, none of my family reached out to, besides my mom reached out to me around the uprising specifically. Like no one was like, how are you doing as a black person? Cause I don't even know if they're ready to, to actually say as a black person, I don't know that. Mm-hmm. Like I know, I know my aunt and my mom have especially have been really supportive of mix this, this past time around. I know they're listening, mm-hmm. but it still is an impact when people don't even notice and white people, white friend. Well, there's a whole different thing with, I think with white friends, we'll get into that maybe, but when people don't even aren't even brave enough to be like how are you doing as a black person during this time of a new civil rights movement um let me know but so i live at home Mm. with my white family Mm. all white okay um the initially right it was a lot of like i can't believe that this is happening in 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 2020, <laughs> in 2020, this is what's happening. I'm like, yes. Have you not paid attention for the past literally ever of all life on the planet? Like yes. really. Right. And then it, it goes from shock to horror. Right. To some extent, whether or not it's performative, we will, time will tell to partially wanting to understand. Like my mom is quite good at seeking out her own information Mm. she's doing the reading she's watching the doc you know like trying trying to 
do the support. Mm. But my stepdad is a whole other story. It initially starts out as like, you know, wow, this is so, this like, this is so awful. I can't even believe that this is a thing to, I need you to educate me on literally everything ever that has ever happened that is wrong in the world. I need you to do that work for me because I don't want to do it. Mm. Right. And to some extent I have a responsibility, right. As a light skin mixed person to have that difficult conversation right about whiteness with my family but it gets to a point where it's like if you're not actually going to listen to what I'm actually saying to you then there's no learning that is going to be happening there's no unpacking there's no relearning how to exist as a person in the world if you are refusing to do the bare fucking minimum the bare minimum like I had family members literally post and they've, they're still posting, you know, blue lives matter and shit still all lives matter. That whole fucking thing. Right. Still. So it, it feels a lot of the time that like, as much as people say that they care about you, they care about the white version of you Mm. for sure. But the you know the other part of yourself that's where they draw the line you know what i mean yeah, yeah i appreciate that like the white version of you suck yeah. yeah so i when i first moved to the city mm-hmm. i grew i grew up with my white side of my family and specifically i grew up really really close with my grandparents they like i lived with them for a good chunk of my life mm. And when I moved to Vancouver and I started to like figure out who I am as a black person, I was about 18 at the time. So this was roughly four years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, it got to a point over the over the years where I like really was like, I'm not coming, like y'all keep wanting me to come to- back for holidays. You will not see me at the holidays um, until I can, you know, exactly that. I wasn't bringing my blackness to Christmas, to Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. none of that, right? So. And when I would, when it would come out, I remember one time over the holidays, I was wearing a shirt that on the front or over the summer, I was wearing a shirt that said um, black is be- black is beautiful. And then on the back, it said decolonize now. And one of my aunties was like, well, everybody's beautiful. No! And I'm like, oh, bitch, nobody said nobody. Everybody wasn't like <laughs> this didn't even say black people. This just said black. Like oh, if I say my favorite color is black, are you going to? if I say my favorite color is black, are you going to tell me that all colors are beautiful? Like, get the fuck out of here. You're not. Really, though? You know? And so, and so it was always met, if my blackness would slip out, it was always met with tension. Mm-hmm. And so while I was here and uncovering myself, yeah, there was a lot of things of people being like, well, why don't you look at, you know, you're listening to a lot of black music. Why don't you listen to like mixed music? And I'm like, what is that? <laughs> like, What does that mean? What does that mean? To, exactly. What does that mean to you? Because I promise you these, the, the mixed, the biracial black, white people that you want me to listen to are still talking about blackness often. So, you know, um, and so I primarily, I focused a lot of my relation building 
in the context of my race with my mom because me and my mom have also always been close but we had our own we had other things in our relationship to repair and so Mm -hmm. I was like why not tag along this and between myself my chosen family and Kona having repeated conversations with her you know and her yeah she also got to a point where she I mean, she's not going to read, I don't think, my mom's not going to like go and seek out books to read on her own. That's just not the kind of person she is. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, she's doing, there's less, I, I'm doing less of her calling me being like, hey, Morgan, this thing happened. Is it okay? Is it not okay? And why? For whatever answer. Um, you know, she tells me now that she, when she was managing a bar for some time, but in any work habitat that she's in, when people say something that's a problem, she nips it in the bud really quick um and stuff so I think that's great Mm -hmm. um and absolutely like her it was important for me to to get her kind of understanding what I was going through so that then she could manage my grandparents and my other family she could have those conversations with them because I was like Mm -hmm. I can't I can't if y'all aren't willing to like meet me somewhere here I can't do this and so over the summer though did people reach out I mean I talk to my mom on a regular basis, so I don't know how to answer that one in particular. I don't know if anyone in I don't know if anyone specifically called me, messaged me, or anything to be like, "How are you doing?" Same. Like, I don't think I think that like my mom probably called and we talked about it, but I don't think at any point like it was like I don't think that it I don't think that I got a message from her like after the video for example had been circul of George Floyd had been circulating for days weeks I don't think she texted me and was like hey this video is going around how are you doing I know for sure none of my other family I know for sure none of my other family did I again I also think me and my grandma maybe had a conversation about it towards the end of the summer mm-hmm. or maybe we had like really if or if they just called me being like how you know what's new in your life like not even what pretending like the world's fine and I would bring it up and we would maybe talk about it but I don't think anybody ever brought it up with me to yeah. check in and like I bring this up not and, and when I was talking to a bunch of different mixed folks about this I bring it up not to just be like wow see how like <laughs> see how awful white people are like it's not really my intention my intention i think is i think identifying this within the experience of people who are white and black in this time identifies how deep that dissonance is for white people that they don't even think about people who raised us people who love us white people in our families who are our blood didn't even consider didn't even have an inkling of understanding that something that was rocking everyone to our fucking cores is something that was happening for us mm-hmm. like i really think in in many cases i i imagine for some people it's fear of saying the wrong thing or of being intrusive but i also think in a lot of cases it's just they don't even understand that that's something they should have been thinking about yeah I, i think that's part of it yeah like what what's what i picked up from that was intrusive right it's very easy for people to be intrusive about experiences that they actually give a fuck about in terms of like oh so like is that your real hair <laughs> or you know other stupid ass questions 
that don't make any sense. But when it's things that, that are like literally shaking the world, that's where they're like, I don't know if I want to unpack that. That's where the silence comes in. And I want to say on the flip side of like, I remember also there was the thing that I personally, I saw more in my white friends of like, and I'm sure y'all had some of this too, of people, when people were doing the thing of reaching out on mass of like, Hey, how are you? Like, I know everything's going to shit. How are you doing? And I know some people on social media were also like, fuck, stop that too. Like, obviously it's bad. So I get that thing of like, sometimes, sometimes, especially these days for white people, I imagine they must be like, I can't do anything right. But I don't know. I think it, I think it comes back to this, like, just care genuinely. Like, <laughs> If you're genuinely reaching out and being like, how are you? It's okay. If you don't answer, I just wanted to check in. Mm-hmm. Personally, I don't have a, I didn't have a problem with that. I just wouldn't respond if I didn't have the spoons for it. Right. But, but again, that was, I observed that whole dynamic playing out in my friends but with my family and with the folks I've talked to with white family, it's largely been this experience of just silence. Yeah. Just, you know, talks about a whole other thing. It's what I've had is either silence or in my own household, it's questioning whether or not these things are actually happening. Mm-hmm. Like the gaslighting is so intense right now. Mm-hmm. Right. Where it's, it's like, well, you know, like, I know that slavery happened, but like, was it really that bad? That kind of stupid shit, right? Like, or just not knowing the full extent of like the slave trade in general. Mm -hmm. Like one of my family members literally asked why um, there were black people in South America or black people in Jamaica or in the Caribbean. And it's like, you do realize that the slave trade didn't just happen in the States and in Canada. Right. Like, and this is the thing too, is that, that like the depth of the ignorance of what they've been brought up in the bubble they've been brought up in is so it, it goes so deep. And I think the thing we as like mixed folks, or any folk, any black people being raised by white people, like we have to sort of hold space for each other of like, that's a fucking wound. And like, even they don't, under, it's like, it makes it worse because they don't understand what they're doing. But mm-hmm. to be like the slave trade wasn't that bad. Like the wound of that is, is immense and mm-hmm. significant. And often as black people growing up in white family, as mixed black people, we have to deal with that on our own. Mm -hmm. We have to just stomach that on our own until we are able to find black community Mm -hmm. where we can feel, where we can process that in community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm really hesitant uh, to, to, I never want to lean into some tragic mulatto kind of story, but I think this is the kind of thing where it's like, okay, in this space, part of what we're doing right now is holding space for like the fucking shit that we have to go through by ourselves as mixed black people being raised by white people. And, mm-hmm. and it's brutal sometimes, mm-hmm. especially when you're also um, being served this like, this uh, 
fed this narrative of you're not black enough, you don't belong in black spaces, all this kind of stuff, and you're dealing with this shit at home, while everything that's in you that is made up of people who survived or didn't the slave trade, you know, someone who survived long enough to get their DNA passed on is in you feeling that too, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where that depth of just like, oh, <laughs> what you are saying is so wrong. I don't even have words for it. When you tell me the slave trade wasn't that bad. Mm -hmm. I just think it's important to honor that. Mm -hmm. And I think too, especially, you know, you asked also specifically about now post since the, the, the uprising. And, um, you know, for me, I find especially now that we're in a world where Kamala Harris is in office. I mean, I feel like I live in a world, I, I feel like I keep having these moments and part of it is pandemic brain. And part of it, I think is like other things. But I keep having these moments of being like, did last summer really happen? Mm. Yes. Because we're not really talking about it. And I think amongst Black people not talking about it, it's like we are fucking tired and fatigued and we need to be overjoyed about... Mm -hmm. Anything we can be. <laughs> Meghan Markle taking down the... The, 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 the monarchy. You know. you know, right? Like, so we're finding our joys in other places, which I think is important, but it's like... You know, like Black History Month, you know, I, I'm not saying that I'm used to white people sending me massive months of money and, you know, doing their reparation rounds. But like, yo, white people weren't doing a lot. White people said I I'm, they said I'm tapped out from the summertime. Mm -hmm. They said I'm tapped out. But even more so, I mean, yeah, we're living now again. Like I said, we're living in this post-racism world where mm -hmm. Kamala Harris is in office and you know, so racism can't exist anymore. We're past exactly. that. Exactly. We're past that. And so I find I find that in a lot of ways is like feels even more like a slap in the face in regards to white family because some like that is not in my immediate I'm trying to think I'm like, has anybody in my family referenced that? So I don't believe so. So not in my immediate sphere, but I know for some folks that like that is basically the response of people where they're like, oh yeah, that summer was really shitty, but it's all okay now because Kamala is an office. And I think the part you touched on about, about burnout and burnout in the black community from last summer is so important because I still like, I feel like once a month I look up and I'm like, oh yes, all the black people are still fucking burnt out. Like it's just, and it's this thing of grief is not linear also, right? And also yeah. we're all in a pandemic that we can never forget that, but that is also yeah. taking a toll on us um, and, and hugely on the black community. But I think it comes back to like white people go harder, go harder. Like you, it cannot be, I think the thing you've identified of like, Black people are tired and need rest right now. And, and maybe that's part of why we're seeing this slight, this slight quieting around everything that was so loud last summer. Mm -hmm. White people go harder. Like, we know you're tired too, but the fact that you can't imagine that you need to call your Black relatives during an uprising means you're not feeling it how we are feeling it. It means you have more energy than us right now. Exactly. Like, I think that there's this, you know, this belief within the white community that, like, their 
perception of it is the way that it is, if that makes sense. They're like, okay, so because Kamala's in office, right, this idea that racism is now over, everybody needs to calm down (laughs) and stop freaking out and stop calling people racist, right? Because that won't get us anywhere. That's how they've perceived this, this entire thing, right? Right. And then they have made it so that they've gaslit all of us into believing it was a fever dream. Fuck. Like how, and that again plays into this whole power thing. Like, do you not understand the power that that holds that you were able to just be like, oh yeah, no, it happened, but everything's fine now. Everything's fine now, even though there are people that are still being harassed, even though people are still dying, like, even though all of this other shit is still going on. But it's fine now. It's like back when, you know, Obama got elected. It's fine now. Like, what is it? This is something that came up for me during the uprising when it felt like, like, or even, you know, during the Wet'suwet'en protests last Mm -hmm. year, when it would feel like, what is it going to take to get people to put to, to get their bodies to Clark and Hastings? What is it going to take? You know, because I would see Morgan, I would follow you a lot for your updates. Cause you are in, in the people that I follow, you are mm-hmm. the, usually one of the most um, uh, like consistent with, and on, on top of the latest updates. And it, and that's kind of how I felt going through the uprising too, of like, what is it going to take? And that's how I feel with some of my white friends is like, what is it going to take for you to use? I, I think of Kona's um, ism a lot of like, what's it going to take for you to risk food? Mm-hmm. What, what's going to make you care enough to risk food? Mm-hmm. And, and at the end of the day, you know, that's really, I think it's a personal thing that people, you can't make someone do anything. You can't guilt someone into anything. You can't make someone care about anything. But I really think it's like white people who are trying to do anti-racism work are trying to be co-conspirators in dismantling white supremacy need to get like vigilant and disciplined about consistently telling, asking themselves, what more what is the next complexity what is the next nuanced thing that i need to look at learn about put into action mm-hmm. and what can i do with my capacity right now how do i make um this work towards a liberated world one of the pillars of my life it doesn't mm-hmm. mean being an activist necessarily but in whatever you do, whatever your life path is, how do you make that a central part of your life? Because if everyone does that, we're going to get to liberation so much sooner and it's going to be good for fucking everybody. That's yeah. the goal, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. I just feel like this conversation, it's so easy to just be like fucking white people. But I feel like, like okay, white people, like take a, you know, what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to make a lot of mistakes and people are going to call you out and it's going to feel shitty and unfair. And that's part of the journey, man. Like, how do you build your capacity to be in that? Yeah. Um, I really appreciate all of the ways that this conversation has gone. Um, we're about at time. Okay. And so 
I, and I feel like this is a great place um, to kind of wrap up and go on with my question that we'll leave people with, but also a question that I'll get y'all to answer, which is what piece of advice would you each give to parents raising biracial black children? Mm. I'll go first. Okay. I'll give y'all some time. Um, and it's something that for me was like, I'm, I, I look back and I'm deeply appreciative for my mom for doing this. And when I know other people raising biracial children, black biracial children who don't do this, it angers me. So my one piece of advice is figure out the hair stuff. <laughs> I'm so serious. And I, I, regardless of what the texture is, if, it's, if, if it is textured enough that you don't know what to do, I need you to pull up the YouTube videos. I need you to call me. I need you, I need you to I need you to find the one other black person in your small town. You know, I need you if my mom could figure this out in the late 90s early 2000s and could go to the one other black black person in my small town of 6,000 people in northern Manitoba, you know, I y'all can figure y'all can open a YouTube tab. Okay? <laughs> y'all can Y'all can find some things. So figure, please, please, please figure out the hair piece that isn't just chemically straightening your baby's heads. Let them make that choice when they're adults or something. But look, that's my mm, advice. It's great advice. That's great advice. Um, I think that my advice would be to ensure that your child has access to community. Mm-hmm. right instead of assuming that they'll figure it out yes right like take them to events culture events you know like watch movies that aren't all about one part specifically white you know like representation show that so that there's no you know question of whether or not their identity is true yes. would be my advice those are both so good i think that i think like for me the hair piece goes inside the community piece and the yeah. community piece is so important um i think my part of two is like one like be real with your kids like be honest with your kid from a young, young age, talk about race with them, talk about the -hmm. fact that they're mixed and that that's something you can provide them some resources about, but they're also just going to have to discover for themselves and like, let them know that they have your support when they're doing that. And I think it's also, and I say this with tenderness because I know like in our parents' generation, like certainly the like, or I'll speak for myself, like the liberal white people that I come from, like I said earlier, like what they were taught was that by not speaking about race, you were moving the world forward. That was what was progressive. But I do think, you know, now (laughs) we are more conscious, if you like do your anti-racism work before you have a mixed baby. You're not gonna be done. Like, you're not gonna like finish your anti-racism work, but like, 
get real about that with yourself, especially for white people in interracial relationships. Get real about your internal anti-racism work. Mm -hmm. um, start that journey before you have a kid. Yeah, please do not let, please do not have biracial babies be your catalyst for unlearning racism. Please, please don't put it on the babies. Begging you. Yeah, others, yeah, part two advice, don't put it on the babies. Don't yeah. put, don't put <laughs> your shit on your kids. Stop do doing that. I'm not here for it. I'm not here for it. I'm not here for it. We did not ask to be here. Don't do it to me. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's always going to be shit that kids are figuring out that their parents couldn't have figured out, I think. But mm -hmm. like, yeah, but certainly I feel like we as a trio of mixies are being like, save your kids some of this pain and like do it with them. Do it with them. Be in a place where you can like hold their hands as they figure this shit out instead of them having to come to you and be like, mom, I'm black. We need to talk about it. Correct. Correct. <laughs> oh, well, again, thank you both for being here. Thank you for having these wide range. We really covered a slew of things. <laughs> thank you for the conversations, for the vulnerability, for the humble and everything that comes along with it. I appreciate both of y'all's insights and everything that you have to offer and share um, and the talents of yours that you share with the world. I wish everybody had the opportunity to experience. Um, are there any things either of you would like to plug any local things happening? This event, this episode won't come out until March 26th, I believe, but if there's anything happening after that, that you would like to plug or promote or that is always happening, now is the time. I have like, I have sort of things cooking, but nothing to like say yet. But um, yeah, I guess keep, you know, if you if you didn't see Mix this time, keep an eye out, follow us at Mix the Play on Instagram. Um, Cause you know, it's important to me to have other mixies see that work, so. Get hooked in. <laughs> Word. Nice. Um, I think the only thing that I have to plug is um, we, so the Prairie Youth Radical Organizing School, we have our website launching on the 20th of March. Um, and you can find it exactly by typing that in. <laughs> Could you please spell it out for me so I can type it in? I can. So Prairie, P-R-A-I-R-I-E, Youth, Y-O-U-T-H, mm -hmm. Radical, R-A-D-I-C-A-L, Organizing, that's a really long one, O-R. Okay, I got it, I got it, thank you. Okay. School. And you can, you'll be able to find it just by, is it just gonna be called like prairieyouthorganizingschool.ca or something? Uh, something like that. Yes, it will be. We're still in the process of building said site, but it should be launched on the 20th. Um, we also have an email 
So pyros.coop at gmail.com. Sweet. And can you talk really quickly, give me a snippet of what it is that this does? Cause I, sure. tell me. Okay, sure. Um, so the Prairie Youth Radical Organizing School is a organization that I co-founded with a friend of mine in 2018. Um, and we essentially do um, facilitation work and workshops around a lot of the things that we talked about today. So anti-racism, um, sensitivity trainings, things like this, uh, but gearing it towards a more youth audience because we think that, you know, young people are experiencing this on a day-to-day -day basis and it's not realistic to expect them to understand all of these nuanced conversations as soon as they enter adulthood. So we're trying to instill these conversations in them from a young age so that they're able to like, you know, do the work of organizing without being like a fish floundering to try and find information. Gorgeous. That's awesome. Wow. wow. I love, I just want to say this is a very clear moment um, where it is apparent that our lineage, that our blood, that our genetics are badass as fuck. I'm Isn't sick. it though? I'm just <laughs> Isn't it though? Yeah. Yeah. So shout out to that. Shout out to that Rodney blood. You better Ooh. work. <laughs> um, wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Did you just say your dad is named Rodney? No, Rodney is our last name. Oh, okay, thank God. I was, <laughs> I was like, cause my dad's name is Roderick. So if you were saying like, if you were hollering to your black blood through your dad's side, through your dad named Rodney, I would have been like, ah, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Uh, Amazing. Hilarious. <laughs> um, Thank you both for joining. Um, thank everybody for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to check out the last episode that we put up with Barbara Sharinos on any streaming platform, including iTunes, Google, Spotify, etc. cetera. All um, just search Black Chat The Podcast. You have to search Black Chat The Podcast. I'm sure it'll come up eventually if you search Black Chat, but like just search Black Chat The Podcast. Follow our journeys on our website at blackchat.ca. Blackchat.com will bring you to a black cam site. So if you want to get with that, support black sex workers. We love to see it. We are not in partnership with them. One day I would love to be. But we are blackchat.ca. You can support us at Patreon at patreon.com slash blackchat and find us on social media, Facebook and Instagram at blackchatvancouver. Um, we will have transcriptions coming out soon. I've been slacking on uploading them because there's backend things that I need to do so that it all flows smoothly, but transcriptions are coming into existence, which is great. We've been wanting um, this accessibility feature since we first started. So shout out to Palesa, our transcriptionist for doing the do there. And until next time, thank you all. And then on unison, we're gonna say goodbye. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs>